0: Blue Wire. To the end zone he goes, where Sammy is! Boyd with a great fake, touchdown Taj! Hopkins
1: throws to Boyd! Lean means touchdown throwing machine tonight and
0: he's got another one. Boyd to the end zone. Oh what an effort!
1: Welcome back to the Taj Boyd Podcast. Now I just want to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening in, for giving me some feedback, and tuning in to Rockin' with the Boy on your daily commute. Now, today's podcast, we'll be discussing pay-to-play throughout collegiate athletics, and that is the NIL, name, image, and likeness. Now, this conversation has people up in arms. If you're not familiar with the term, this is how it got started. So years ago, former UCLA basketball star Ed O'Bannon proved that the NCAA's ban on athletes profiting from the use of their names, image, and likeness violated a federal antitrust law and that essentially uh, explains that players should get compensated for the use of all things resembling them that can range from video games, billboards, Jersey sales, so forth. So I can talk about this personally all day, but I figured I'd get an expert in this realm on the pod. So I'm bringing you Christy Dosh. Uh, Christy is as qualified as it gets when talking about this. She is an author. She wrote Saturday Millionaires, uh, how Winning Football Builds Winning Colleges, and I just ordered the book, so I suggest and advise that you also do the same, uh, she has some really good insight into all of this. She's also a podcast host, all right? She has a podcast called BCS, ironically enough, Business of College Sports, PR Agency got My Brand. She was a sports business analyst for Forbes, ESPN, Entrepreneur Magazine, so many other things. And uh, she is also an attorney. So she wears many hats. Excited to really get in and deep dive about this conversation uh, because it is important. And it's coming. And we are trying to figure out what it will look like when it does hit. So hope you guys enjoy the podcast. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button. and Send me any questions that you have at the Taj Boyd podcast at gmail.com. So here we go. Uh, let me know what you think. Now, we got a lot to chew on here, a lot to talk about, and I'm very excited about it. This is something that that I've always wanted to kind of get in the forefront of and and really get some insight into the inner workings of it. And obviously, you've done that. So, although we got a lot to talk about, you've also accomplished a lot in your career, right? You wear many different hats. You're an author, all right? Saturday Millionaires, How Winning Football Builds Winning Colleges. I actually just purchased that myself. It should arrive (laughs) tomorrow, so I'm very excited about that.
0: Thank you. I appreciate uh, the purchase. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right, you got a podcast. All right, BCS, ironically enough, my last year was into end of the BCS era, but it is the business of college sports, and uh, we're going to get into that here in a little bit too. But you also got a PR agency, God My Brand, that is the Instagram handle as well, so check that out. You're a sports business analyst for Forbes, ESPN, Entrepreneur Magazine, so many outlets, I can't even name them. And then you got a website, christydosh.com, all right, and you're an attorney. Now, how does I want to know how you multitasking and kind of get around all these different things?
0: Yeah, you know, I started my career as an attorney. That was all I had ever wanted to do growing up. And um, you know, went through school knowing I wanted to go to law school and wanted to be an attorney. And I was hoping that I could have a career in law that included sports. Like growing up, I grew up in Atlanta. I was a big Braves fan, and I wanted to be a general manager in Major League Baseball one day. I, I've kind of gotten over that now. But in early in my career, that was a good goal and had the opportunity to work in sports a little bit as an intern when I was in law school. And Got a little feel for that. But uh, quite frankly, working in a big law firm pays a lot more than working in sports (laughs) does. And I had student loans. And so it made more sense for me to take an offer from a law firm. And I went and did real estate and corporate law for almost five years, but just never lost that passion for sports. And so I blogged about sports on the side in my not-so-abundant free time, but when I had the chance and I was writing about legal and business issues and sports. And when I sort of stumbled upon the business of college sports and started learning more about that, uh, my blogging and sort of my career took off on that side. And I eventually got hired away by ESPN to be their sports business reporter. And that was back in 2011. So I have not practiced law since then, although I feel like I still use my law degree all the time to take a look at. Uh, pouring right contracts and mm-hmm. naming rights contracts for stadiums and AD contracts and coaching contracts. So <laughs> I I still appreciate having that legal education and I still pay for it every single month. <laughs> and that's the cool part because
1: I feel like it does come full circle, you know, in, in all aspects of your business right now. So you know the 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 attitude and the approach from what that stems from really gives you a different perspective on a, a different insight. And, um, you know, that's what, that's what's exciting about this particular podcast altogether. But, you know, even when you publish your book in 2013, and I want to get into why you exactly did that. Things have changed since that time period so far. Now, since that time, outside of social media, what are some of the things that have really uh, jumped to the forefront in your mind?
0: Well, you know, when I was writing the book, I got the book deal in 2011, and then it came out in 2013. And that was right as all the discussion was happening about moving to the college football playoff system. You know, I guess that would have been over sort of the same time period that you were playing. And so the BCS was coming to an end, the college football playoff was coming, and there had been all of that conference realignment. There'd been a lot of new television contracts. And so I always say I was kind of in the right place at the right time. I started writing about the business of college sports like 2009, 2010, and that was right as conference realignment heated up. That was driven by the television contracts. Then I think all of that sort of drove the move to the college football playoff. And so I was kind of writing about it at the right time and got more and more exposure. But I remember telling my editor, like, we can't publish the book yet because I don't know yet if conference realignment is over. And I don't want this book to come out. And two months from now, the conferences (laughs) look totally different. And it was just so hard because it's not like you knew when it was going to end. You had to just sort of guess when the critical mass of it was over. So uh, I did manage to get in, I think, all of the conference realignment that happened at that time, although we've had a little bit happen since then. But I was having to speculate about things like what the SEC network was going to look like. And Mm -hmm. at that point in time, we didn't even know there was going to be an ACC network and the Pac-12 networks were just coming together. So I had some information and was able to write about it, but certainly I know more now than I did then. And maybe one day I'll get the opportunity to go back and and update the book because college sports, the, the business side, it moves fast. Things change. uh, It seems like every day.
1: (laughs) And when you were going through uh, your research, was there anything that was necessarily earth shattering as you were going through it? Or did you have somewhat of an idea of what it was going to look like and how it was going to play out as you were going through it?
0: You know, the most interesting things I learned, I think, had a lot to do with my age. So I would have been in my early 30s when I was writing that book. And I didn't really become a big college football fan until I was in law school. I went to University of Florida for law school. And I was there when Urban Meyer was there and Tim Tebow was there. So I watched them win a national championship. And that really sparked my interest in college football. My high school had been really good at football and won state titles. And I had watched some of those guys go off and play in college but I went to a D3 with no football. So football was not part of my college experience. And it was that law school experience that really got me paying attention. So what was surprising to me was I wrote a chapter that was about sort of the history of college football on television and Mm -hmm. how television contracts drove things like conference realignment. And I can remember reading articles and like reading them out to my husband and being like, do you remember that Penn State used to be independent and they weren't in the Big Ten? You know, like I had no memory of that because not only would I have been really young when that was happening, but I wasn't paying attention to college sports at that age. And so I got a lot of education around earlier rounds of conference realignment that I just had no knowledge of as a fan because I was too young to remember it.
1: Yeah. And along those lines of realignment of TV structures, the one thing that pops to mind Always is Notre Dame. Now, how lucrative is their deal that they don't want to jump into the ACC from a football standpoint, but they are part of the the organization, a part of the conference and all other sports?
0: Yeah, I wrote about this recently because the college football playoff and, and this happened to some degree under the BCS, too, but under the college football playoff. Uh, each conference is guaranteed a set amount of money no matter how their teams perform. So the Power Five are all guaranteed. I think this year it was a little over $60 million each. And then the group of five collectively share a pool that is significantly smaller. And then independents all get separate amounts individually. And Notre Dame has the best deal. Even in years that they don't make it into a semifinal, they're still getting over $2 million from the college football playoff, Well, in the years that they make it into a semifinal, they get even more money. And, you know, you went to Clemson. When Clemson gets into the semifinals they're earning money for the conference. So the $6 million that Clemson got this year for being in the semifinals and being in the national championship, Clemson doesn't get that $6 million check. The ACC gets it and Mm -hmm. the ACC splits it evenly between all of the teams in the conference. So Clemson is only getting a tiny share of that. Whereas When Notre Dame was in the playoffs a few years ago, Uh they got the whole $6 to themselves. So (laughs) I looked at the first five years of the college football playoff on Forbes uh, last month, and I looked at how much did each conference make during those first five years and came to the conclusion that Notre Dame made more money than probably anyone but Alabama because the SEC does allow... Uh, any team they have that makes it into the semifinals to keep a larger portion of that $6 million. You don't see that in a lot of other conferences. The Big 12 does a version of it as well. But obviously Alabama has seen a lot of success during the five years of the college football playoffs. So I think if you ran the numbers, Alabama probably made the most money of any individual institution. But Notre Dame is right on their heels. Yeah. And because they get that kind of money from the college football playoff and they don't have to share it with anybody – and because they have their own television contract, there's no financial incentive for them to join a conference. Right. I don't see it happening anytime soon unless the other conferences pressure the college football playoff to stop giving Notre Dame that kind of money or unless NBC decided to drop Notre Dame, which based on the conversations I've had with people, right. that's not going to happen anytime soon either.
1: So in layman's terms, Notre Dame is like the mob and the power five, like the union <laughs> pretty much.
0: Something like that, you know. Notre Dame has a really strong brand. You know, people recognize Notre Dame. They recognize the logo. They, you know, recognize the program. You know, even people who aren't college football fans, they've probably seen Rudy and they recognize Notre Dame for that. You know, there are a certain number of brands in college football that have been around longer and had success over a longer period of time. That in the Sort of collective consciousness of your average American, they can recognize that school, they can recognize that logo, and that brings value to someone like an NBC who wants to air Notre Dame's games. And they have a longstanding partnership right. um, in its content. NBC, I think, wants and doesn't have, for uh, you know. From other college football programs. So Notre Dame is going to be able to uh, control its own destiny, I think, for the time being. Well, it
1: almost seems like they're grandfathered in contractually. How often do these contracts change or exchange hands?
0: Now that we're in the college football playoff, I think they've said that they will have – I think the first look in is eight years in. We're five years in now. You know, Technically, they could really take a look at it any time that they Mm -hmm. want, but I don't think we'll see substantial changes to it on a yearly basis or anything like that. I think every, I'd say, five to ten years, maybe you'd see some sort of movement with the way that it's structured. But most of what I hear from people that are involved with the playoff is – it's working. It's working for everyone. Everyone's pretty happy. You know, you hear some grumbling from the group of five that they're not getting as big of a share as the power five are, but also quite frankly, they just don't have the leverage the power five have. So I don't know that that changes anytime soon. And no one has tried to challenge Notre Dame's position uh, in the what they're getting from the college football playoff. And I I don't really see that changing. Well,
1: Do you understand or or know kind of the the inside information on how Notre Dame actually dispersed their capital? Does it go throughout all the organizations within Notre Dame's uh, athletic program or is it strictly for football?
0: They don't share information uh, publicly because they're a private institution. However, when I was writing my book, I was able to speak to somebody there, and they give a substantial amount of their athletic revenue back to the yeah. university. Um, there's, you know, a small number of schools I would say who give back to the university kind of above and beyond what they already have to pay the university. So. Um, For your listeners who maybe haven't heard this or don't know, if you look at how athletic department financials work, there's a significant chunk that essentially goes from the athletic department back to the university. They pay tuition, room, and board to the university essentially at the same rates that uh, any student would pay. And so I remember that was a big lesson I learned when I started covering college football. I had no idea the athletic department actually wrote a check to the university for the tuition, room, and board. I just figured that was something that got kind of written off by the university. (laughs) Um, But that's not the case at all. And so every school is sending money back to the university for things like tuition, room, and board. Um, Some of them pay for use of certain facilities. So you have all this money that's already changing hands hands. But a handful of schools do well enough and have enough revenue that they're able to contribute back to academic scholarships or maybe to the building of other facilities on campus. Like I remember Ohio State made a pretty significant contribution to a new library on campus. Um, I know Florida at one point gave money to academics and something like $6 million a year. They sent back to academics for the computer science program and for some other things. Notre Dame, I believe, I, I'm guessing this off the top of my head because it's been a while since I wrote this in the book, but I think they were giving something like $20 million back a year to uh, the university. You do not see not that in any other and, school.
1: And along those lines, since universities like they are accruing so much, so much revenue, could you ever see the power of five breaking away from the NCAA in its totality.
0: You know, you hear a lot of rumblings about that. And in fact, I was just reading an article earlier today where someone talked about that. However, when I've spoken to athletic directors in the Power Five, they've all told me they don't believe that'll ever happen, that no one wants to take on the sort of administrative nightmare. I mean, if you look at the NCAA's financials, I've been at a conference before where those have been put up on the big screen and I've scribbled them down. And when you look at the money they spend on things like legal fees, And insurance and, you know, just the staff that has to oversee the various, uh, you know, conference champ, I'm sorry, not conference championships, but the, the regionals and the super regionals and the national championships, you know, it takes a pretty big machine to run college athletics. And so I don't think the power five wants to take that on. They'd have to essentially form another organization. And in the end, I think they'd have many of the same headaches that already exist with the NCAA because they're still. Going to have to manage and do some of the same things.
1: So I had some people reach out because uh, they knew you were going to be on. They were very excited about it and they had a few questions mm-hmm. of their own. All right, now one of the guys, Richard Steen, asks how the tax structure works uh, within college athletics. Like in the NFL, you know, the, the employees, the players, the coaches, whoever it may mm-hmm. be, get paid per state that they play in or they get taxed on right. that as well. For these college coaches and the assistant coaches, does it work the same way on that end of it?
0: Yeah, what like I live in Florida and there's no state income tax here. So if you were a head coach at uf or fsu or any of the institutions here in florida then you wouldn't have to pay state tax so i know i always see people tweet about you know that maybe a pro player would decide to go to a certain city because if he lived in that state he'd not have no state income tax so he'd be making more money i mean the same is true of head coaches i don't think that that's like the determining you know like the number one determining factor in anyone's decision um but it it does work the same way gotcha okay
1: that makes a lot of sense all right and for me, at least, anyways, as I was looking through your, your titles on your book, you know, I think it's chapter two. It says, Why Student Athletes Will Never Be Paid. And I want to tap that a little bit. And at this point, since this has been six years since the Bush book is published, do you see yourself making a revised format of it?
0: I don't so what that chapter was really about was why I think student athletes will never be paid like employees because there are a number of different issues and obviously I could talk about that for like a full hour because I wrote a whole chapter on it but the the two main things I will point out is that one athletic departments are currently nonprofits some of them are nonprofits under the sort of umbrella of the university they're with some of them are actually separate nonprofits so that that gets complicated when you get into that difference and that kind of varies state by state but the bottom line of it is if student athletes were paid like employees athletic departments would probably no longer be nonprofits I interviewed a former head of of the IRS's nonprofit division for the book and got much of that information from him. And so then you start looking at the sort of domino effect of that. So if they're now taxed, you're in a very different situation in terms of how much revenue they have available for uh, the other sports, for the rest of the staff. Also now, when people make donations to the athletic department, it's not going to be tax deductible. And so when I talk to athletic departments back when I was writing the book, they told me they would expect to lose as much as 50% of their revenue if donations were no longer tax deductible. And at that point in time when I was writing the book... Donations actually at most schools brought in more money than the television contracts did. Now, that has flipped a little bit because of the advent of conference networks. And so particularly in the SEC and the Big Ten, if you looked at the numbers now, there's more money from TV than there is from donations. And the tax laws have even been adjusted a little bit in terms of like when you make a, they call it a seat-related donation to be able to buy your football tickets. Not as much of it is deductible as it used to be.
1: Well, and along those lines of athletic departments being nonprofits, you know, there's been some issues that arise specifically at Clemson and I'm sure other universities as well where tickets and season tickets that used to be tax deductible are no longer that. Can you explain why on that front?
0: Yeah, so there was a revision in the federal law where it used to be essentially that all all the money you donated to an athletic department was tax deductible. But if it was related to your ability to purchase tickets, I think it was only 80% of it was deductible. So there have been a number of pieces of legislation introduced that essentially want to take away the tax deduction for those, they call them seat-related donations. And that's where the bulk of the money comes from for football and men's basketball donations is those seat-related ones, those donations you have to make to be able to get the better tickets or get into a suite. So that has changed a little bit since I wrote the book, but you know remains an issue.
1: Hmm. Well, and, and the
0: I'll oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say that the other thing I sort of hit on in the book was Title IX and how Title IX could be impacted if you were talking about paying student athletes. You know, at the end of the day, athletic departments don't look like professional sports. And so you hear these arguments all the time about, well, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? They do it in pro sports. Well, they also have a draft in pro sports. You know, they, they have a lot of things that we don't have in college sports that impact things like competitive balance and that don't make sense in. College sports. Like what if somebody had told you, hey, you've got to go to Toledo because they drafted you? You know, well, what if Toledo didn't have what you wanted to major in? Right. <laughs> um, so it it does look different. And football and men's basketball fund every other sport. And Title IX requires that you treat men and women equitably and that you offer sports in percentages relative to the student body. So if the student body is 52% male and 48% female... You've got to have your sports pretty close to 52% male, 48% female, and that's a federal law. And so when you get into paying student athletes, it starts becoming difficult to comply with nonprofit law and Title IX. So I I still stand by the stuff I had in the book about why I think student athletes won't ever be employees, but obviously we've seen there be other changes like the name image and likeness legislation we're Mm -hmm. seeing all over the place now.
1: And with LeBron being such a big advocate for it, I guess it's supposed to be unveiling what, in 2023?
0: Yeah, so California's law is the only one that's actually been passed and signed by the governor. It would go into effect in 2023, but now you have, I think, over a dozen other states that have introduced legislation, and those states, some of them are looking to implement as soon as next school year. I know Florida, where I live, would like to implement it for next school year. And that's problematic. Um, you know, for the NCAA to manage 50 different state laws would be a bit of a nightmare. And to have that competitive, Uh, sort of bounce. In recruiting, if some states allowed student-athletes to profit off their name, image, and likeness and other states didn't, that's going to really change what recruiting looks like and what competitive balance looks like. So I think in the end, either the NCAA or the federal government will have legislation that will govern everyone. And I think that's what California was trying to accomplish. They gave until 2023 because I think they wanted to give time for the NCAA to enact something that would you know, encompass everyone.
1: Now, are we seeing cracks within the NCAA? Like, is it to the point where it can legitimately fall? Mainly, all right, one with Transfer Portal, right? And I have my own thought processes on that right there. And, and the way that I view the Transfer Portal, one with mm-hmm. NIL and everything that seems to be happening here pretty soon, it becomes the Wild Wild West all over again.
0: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the transfer rules. You know, I never played college athletics, but as an outsider looking in, it makes no sense to me. You know, if the coach that recruited me leaves, I totally understand why I might want to leave and go where he's going. That's the person I came to, you know, be coached by and trained by, you know, all of a sudden I'm getting left with someone else who maybe doesn't fit my style of play in whatever sport that it is. Or we've seen a lot of cases where student athletes have a sick family member. They want to move to be near. And sometimes those waivers are granted, but sometimes they're not. And so that restricting the ability of student athletes to move around um, is not something I've ever understood. And it's definitely under attack. And I think it's something where we'll see some major changes. Now,
1: your personal thoughts on it, not just from a business standpoint, but do you think that players should be paid some monies based off of what they bring to the university themselves?
0: Oh, it's it's a tough Answer because I, my problem with it is I can't find a way to do it. You know, I have no problem with the name, image, and likeness legislation. I hope that it comes from the NCAA or the federal government and that it's uniform across all of the states because I think it would be a nightmare to have different laws in different states. And I don't want to see competitive balance changed. And people argue that there's not competitive balance now. And I get that it is not perfect competitive balance, but it isn't in the pro sports either. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to see it eroded. Further than it is. And I just can't think of a system that works because we all know that it's football and men's basketball players who generate the revenue who arguably should get some of it, you know? And you can't pay football and men's basketball players and not pay all the other sports because Title IX doesn't allow mm-hmm. it. And that's federal law. And the federal government has shown absolutely no indication that they will ever change that. And the mission of college athletics was always to provide as many opportunities as possible to student athletes in all sports. And so football and men's basketball funds every other sport. They were never meant to be standalone sports. And so I always kind of come back to, isn't this an NFL or an NBA problem? Because we never have this conversation about baseball Ever because the top talent can go straight out of high school. And I understand, especially in football, that someone straight out of high school probably doesn't have the, you know, size or ability or whatever to be able to play in the NFL. But maybe the NFL should have some sort of developmental league. And instead, they're using college athletics as a developmental training ground. And so I've always sort of felt like the NBA and the NFL have created this problem for the NCAA because they're. Forcing guys who perhaps don't want to be in college and don't have any interest in yeah. getting the degree at that point in time to come to college because it's the only place you can play at that age and really develop. Right. And so I've always been frustrated by the NFL and the NBA, but they have no incentive to change because they're getting their talent developed essentially for free right now. So why would they change that? So I just, it's a tough situation, I think for everybody. Well, and if the
1: NFL wanted the farm system, they would have already put one together. I mean, you get at least right. in the NBA
0: they're getting great talent yeah. for free. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they have no incentive to do it. And that was actually going to be one of my questions for you and not to like turn the no, tables no. on you a little bit. But I was going to ask you with the XFL coming and other pro leagues that have been talked about, mm-hmm. you know, do you think if there was an option that was a legitimate option to develop as a player, do you think we would see more guys go straight from high school into the professional environment and skip college? I do.
1: I do. And that's that's one of the issues for me with the, the pay-to-play format, right? It's, you know, what are we really going to school to achieve? Now, granted, they're on paper student athletes, but you get your scholarship to perform a duty, right? And it's to play ball and school is somewhat just a byproduct, right? Because at the end of the day, I mean, at least you can't really necessarily major in what you want to major in. You know, you're limited in that capacity because of what the schedule allows you to do with football or basketball or baseball or everything else of that nature. Now, what we've seen in basketball, and I think it's going to be a trend going forward. You can look at it with Alonzo or uh, LaMelo Ball right now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he is taking these steps forward to go play overseas, still be able to get drafted, but make money off of his image and likeness right now without – having to necessarily go the NCAA route. And I I think that's going to be something that we continue to see along those lines. Now with the, with the Vince McMahon, you know, XFL, I think what it does is, is create a different type of draw too, because there's don't get me twisted. Like there's not too many athletes that can go and transition from college to pro in one year, you know, a handful of guys from high school to pro is just a different beast in its entirety. But with social media being so big and these numbers, of people that follow these athletes, there's money to be made there on that front. And so you know with the nil, you know, my biggest thing is I believe that you should be able to capitalize on your market value while you have it because while Jake Fromm is playing at the University of Georgia, for him, that market may be as big as it ever gets for him. We don't know what happens when he takes that next step to the to the next level. You know he may be one of these guys that is a. Is a small fish in the big pond. But while he's there at UGA right now in that particular market, he can make however much money he wants to make. Same thing with Trevor Lawrence right now. If he was able to, you know, he would be able to get, you know, commercials from Pantene and everything else of that nature and really, really be able to help his family out in that structure. And again, different circumstances for different players. Some players come from a situation at home where they can, they can sit there and actually be a student and not necessarily have to worry about what's next. But for a lot of these kids, they come from environments where they're not just taking care of them, but they're taking care of the entire family that way. And if Vince McMahon finds a way to really create an outlet that way, I think that would be attractive on all fronts going forward.
0: Yeah, And it was something I got into a discussion with a student athlete about on Twitter years ago, probably when I was working on the book. And I was sort of thinking about pay to play and about you know, what is the value of what you're getting from these universities? You know, we hear about the value of the scholarship and some of the other benefits, but, you know, I I was asking somebody, well, you could go and play in the arena league or in the CFL straight out of high school. Why didn't you? And he said, well, you know, the, the coaching and the training and the competition is better at the college level. And it's like, okay, well then what's the value of that? Like you're, you are passing up going and making money right off the bat because you feel like there is intrinsic value in the coaching, the training, maybe it's the facilities, you know, you feel like there's value in that. And so, You know, I think it's a a tough argument. It's why I kind of go back to the NFL and the NBA sort of put the NCAA in this position. And certainly the NCAA benefits because college football has become so big and the television contracts are huge and they're able to make a lot of money on football and men's basketball. But, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was when you were coming into college, how did you view like the value of the scholarship, the training? I don't know the meals, the travel, all the stuff. I, I know being a student athlete isn't easy, and it's a huge time commitment. And I'm definitely not minimizing that, but just curious to hear your thoughts, like as you were what 17, 18, and getting ready to go play college football. How did you view the value of what you were going to get through that process? Well, I didn't
1: know what I didn't know, you know, and there was (laughs) these discussions on the outside, you know, putting these thoughts into my brain. And, you know, now these kids, I mean, look, they're smart, they're intelligent. They've been able to deal with people since they were seven, eight years old. I mean, you got some kids out here legitimately that are getting uh, hit up by agents while they're a freshman, sophomore in high school of what's to come. Later on. And so it changes in that dynamic a little bit more so than what has happened in the years past. But, you know, for me, when I walked into school, I mean, it was great. You know, training table, you know, super cool uh, outfits, you know, sweatsuits, shorts, shoes, gloves for free, plenty of footballs to throw. I mean, it was great. And, you know, you never want to take that a- away from because look, it is amateur and these kids are legitimately having fun um and really just enjoying what they do that's the reason that they play the game I don't believe that there's too many kids out here who step on that football field as a little leaguer and say hey I'm, I don't love this game you know I just want to play solely so I can get to the NFL and make money that way no you play because you enjoy it and you, you play because you love it but you know when you got all these other advocates out here that's, that's implanting these thoughts into these kids minds well it changes everything and you know with the sport you know, even with the CTE discussion, it's continuing to grow at a pace that I don't think a lot of people saw. Um, you know, there's big money in it, and some of these kids are trying to figure out how to get a hold of it right now, because they don't know if they're going to see that second contract. They don't know if they're necessarily going to get drafted in those first three or four rounds. You know, and so I don't know, man. I t- I talked to some of my my friends and some of my teammates, and we never had a discussion. That was something that never came up. You know, we just wanted to go ahead and and go to class and go to workouts and play ball and party and enjoy college all together but it becomes an issue i guess in hindsight because you know you realize the value of education may not exactly be what it looks like on paper you know if i'm majoring in prtm or sociology or psychology i may not ever do anything with that and so from an advantage standpoint in the workforce it may not necessarily be there if i was to go into to school to be an attorney if I was going to go and be an engineer. There are kids who do that, but nine times out of 10, they're not getting their school paid for. They're usually walk-ons and, you know, coaches can't dictate necessarily what they're majoring in. And, right. you know, it's just, I don't know, it, it's know—it's—it's—it's it's tricky and it's tough. And, you know, you do realize, you know, as a player that if money was introduced in this realm legally, that it could change everything about it. And the reason that college athletics are so special is because you're all working towards a common goal. Right. Nobody's necessarily getting paid, but you're working out because, you know, you want to to compete next to your guys. You want to win a championship. You you wanna, you know, continue to to show your family what it looks like to play on the big screen. And once you introduce money, well it changes a little bit of everything. And I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing going forward. I guess we're gonna find out though at some point.
0: Well, it leads me to so many questions I had for you. So <laughs> let me pepper you with a few of them because I wasn't a student athlete and I wasn't in the position you were being a starting quarterback at a major program. And so when I when I thought about us having this conversation and the things I wanted to know from you and that I think most fans have no idea about either, you know, one of the first things I thought about was that recruiting process and what that was actually like for you versus what do you think it would have been like if sponsorships had a, had been in play? Like, Have you given that any thought to what the recruiting process, how that could change if you've got, sure. say, car dealerships and local businesses at the schools you're looking at who are already making you offers before you've even decided where to go to school? Sure.
1: I, I talk about it all the time. And I think that in the long run, if it played out exactly like that, then it hurts Clemson, a university like that, in that size, in that state, in that market. Because even in, in, in NFL... You know, a lot of the market is based off of where you're actually at, you know, your marketing dollars and your value. And so for me, well, that takes the traditional powers that that were of long ago and brings them back to the center of college football. So what kid wouldn't want to go to Southern Cal being right there and knowing that they can profit on some sort of advertisement or some sort of sponsorship in the space as big as that? I mean, what would it look like for me not to go to Oregon and get a call by Phil Knight and say, hey. You know, as soon as you finish up, hey, matter of fact, we got this whole deal lined up for you at Nike already before you even walk through the door. You know, it's so crazy, the possibilities of what could happen. But I think it tanks and crushes other universities because then the parents have to go on that that outlook on, okay, what do we want to go here and and, and graduate and maybe become a better man? Or do we want to go ahead and see if we can go make some cash right now? You know, so it's a dilemma going forward, you know.
0: And, uh, you know, you have now by this stage, you you've dealt with sort of agents and you know what it was like when you were finishing up your college career Mm -hmm. and getting ready to go into the draft. Um, But but I don't know what it's like, except hearing other people talk about it here and there. And I'm curious what that was like for you and what it would have been like if it had been happening when you were 17 and you were choosing colleges (laughs) and had those same kind of conversations. Oh,
1: man, it was rough for me at 22. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it was so hard to to fight through the BS, you know, and figure out what was true and what was real. And, you know, everything sounds good. You know, it's like, hey, and I actually that's kind of like what I do for a lot of these kids, man. It's like they'll call me and ask me about particular agents or, or what I think about, you know, their prospects going forward. And I'll tie back the experiences that I had because I felt like I actually made all the wrong decisions and why I picked the people that I had to represent me. Mm-hmm. Now you're taking it at 16, 17, 18 years old. And the guys who used to have to go through the back door now come to the front door the agents right? and they're coming in and they don't necessarily have to persuade you as much as they have to persuade your family. Right. And if the people that you're around the decision makers, that the, the adults that you take heed to what they say, feel like that's the right decision for you, then you're also going to feel that way too. And it's so much, it's so much mischief and, and conniving and, and just lies across the board coming into some of these conversations with some of this dialogue that it's hard to tell was fact or fiction. And,
0: um, well, so okay. do you think that athletic departments or the NCAA should get involved in that or should they just trust that parents are going to be able to, I don't know if it? they'll know
1: how to handle it. You know, I don't know how, how well their, their, their radar detectors turned up because they they've never been in that situation right. and it, they would need, they would need some sort of language in that contract that because sometimes they don't even know what they're reading, you know, and it, there's so many other bylaws in there or so many other things. Like, for example, if you pick an agent, most kids don't even know that even if you fire that agent, he's still locked in for the life of that particular contract, whatever it may be. Right. And
0: I learned that as a sports media broadcaster you know. <laughs> too, <laughs> it was a painful lesson to learn. Yeah, sure. <laughs>
1: or from a marketing standpoint, you know, what could be easy dollars or what they actually work for. And you're tied into this huge percentage realizing that you probably could have got that without these people being involved. So there's, there's so much learning and, and really just knowledge that these kids would have to have. And I don't know if that would affect them in their high schools or early on in their colleges and really take away from the time that they need to be preparing for everything else. So, you know, it's,
0: Right, like who are you going to have hanging out like on the sidelines at practice at high school? Yeah. You know, I feel like high schools are suddenly going to have these people on campus who are trying to get to their, you know, starting quarterback or to, you know, their point guard or whatever. and That's going to look really different.
1: Right. I mean, we made a big deal of Lane Kiffin offering kids in the eighth grade. Imagine, yeah. imagine if you rode the house and that. sitting outside of your house, you know, while you're in, while you're in 11th grade, you know, it's, it's mind boggling to me on what could happen.
0: So here's something else I thought of kind of along those same lines was, okay, because I I just keep trying to play out this name, image, and likeness thing. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be done or that student athletes shouldn't be able to profit off their name, image, and likeness. I am just thinking through like all the things you have to take into consideration. And so when people are like, oh, the NCAA should just open it up tomorrow and it should be a free market. Well, there's like a lot of things to (laughs) take into consideration that I think they're trying to figure out how to manage, what role should they play? What role should athletic departments play? I wrote a whole piece that was just about, and actually one of my earlier podcast episodes was all about if athletic departments get involved at any level, then Title IX gets involved and all the complications that brings because, you know, a women's soccer player probably isn't going to have the same opportunities that the starting quarterback is going to have. So I won't go into all that here because I've already done a whole episode on it. But one of the things I thought of that I, I thought would be interesting to ask you is what starts happening with things like playing time. So if you're, you know, a football student athlete or whatever sport you're in, if you are thinking about it from a marketing perspective and from being able to maximize your earnings, you know, how much more is that going to complicate or create issues between players and coaches when it comes to playing time? Or like with you, what if you're favoring as the quarterback, you're favoring one receiver all the time, <laughs> or you can have another receiver getting irritated with you because he's not getting the face time he needs on TV. TV to get better sponsorship deals yeah, it could
1: get a little messy out there you know because it's already tricky right now you know there's there's players who will bash coaches and vice versa you know if a, if a kid gives a coach problems you know a lot of these nfl coaches and these gms you know they're calling in like hey you know how's this kid what's he what's your he problem for you and you know maybe he was and maybe he wasn't but you're still going to take it at face value right there but i think it would change the dynamic of everything especially with the skilled players you know wide receivers, quarterbacks, running backs, because everybody already wants to touch the ball. And there's only one of it. You know, there's one football out there. And so to be able to divvy that out, I mean, that was an issue I had. It wasn't even any money involved, but I had so many weapons. (laughs) Sammy Watkins and Nuke Hopkins and Martavis Bryant and Adam Humphreys and Jerome Brown. And I was sitting there stressed out after the game, like, and I'm walking up to guys in the locker room, like, hey, sorry, man. Um, You know, I know you only got two touches. I wanted to get you more, but I'll get you next game. So I can imagine what that would look like if it would equate it to dollars, you know.
0: Right. Because there, I could see from a brand perspective that if a brand was working with an individual student athlete, they could put clauses into the contract that say that there are reductions in payment if you aren't getting X amount of playing time. Or, you know, I talked to one of the marketers for a piece I wrote for Forbes a while back about um, – you know, what happened to Tua? And I said, okay, you get injured and you can't even play. Then what happens to all of these deals you've struck for social media marketing or um, being an ambassador for a brand or what have you? And they said, well, basically, if you're not playing, all that stuff's going to go away. And all these brands are going to put provisions in the contract that protect them in case you either get injured or maybe you're not getting the kind of playing time you expected. And so... You know, I, I'm curious from your point of view, like how do you think that changes the the locker room atmosphere and the attitudes of players towards each other?
1: I don't know. I, I know a lot of these kids don't. So to me, that in a way, it's almost like socialism, right? Like uh, everybody on that team, you know, has a job to do, but they also know who's the big guy on campuses. And mm-hmm. you know, along those lines, like you know, Trevor Lawrence right now from Clemson has close to half a million followers. All right. And this is this is my only kicker. So what if what if Trevor goes out there and God forbid blows both of his knees out? He can't ever play again. And you know, what we thought would be twenty-five or thirty million dollars right off the back of him coming out of college just goes up in the thin air. The fact that he wasn't able to capitalize on that social media following, much like every other college student and their, their you know, the, the free will that they have to be able to vlog and make capital or trade in Forex or even sell their apparel, you know, the jerseys, you know, we saw what happened with AJ green. We saw what happened to Ty girly things that they, they, they sweat and, and they bled for, they can't capitalize on it. And that's the one thing that crushes me. Cause I'm like, look, man, at the end of the day, they're, they're putting the work for a cause for a greater cause. And that's the university altogether. We know how that affects the economy. We understand how that affects tuition and everything else going forward. But the fact that they can't, really be able to capitalize on at that moment until they actually get off of campus. is just what bothers me a little bit on that front. Again, I don't believe a player should be paid to play the game. I think the scholarship is worthy enough, but if they got a market, I just feel like they should be able to tap into it and really grow with it as it's happening.
0: Yeah. And that makes sense to me. And you know, I've just, you know, I like I like thinking about how it all sort of plays out and what do what does the NCAA or the federal government, if they're going to introduce legislation, what are the things they need to think about? Like we saw California in their mm-hmm. bill, they do have a provision in there that essentially says you can't cut a deal that would be directly competitive with an athletic department deal. So uh, if the athletic department's Nike, you can't go cut an Adidas <laughs> deal. You know, I think those sort of provisions are going to be in there, and I think right now they're just trying to figure out what else needs to be in there to, um, you know, yeah. make this as flawless a system as it can be. And there are going to be things they don't think of, that like unintended consequences that we haven't even thought of yet. But, you know, I have like a running list of all the ones I've already thought of right. and trying to figure out how does it play out? And we won't know till it happens, but it's still just interesting to talk about nonetheless. Well, Sandor's
1: box <laughs> is definitely opening, you know, and, and I didn't really think of it from that standpoint If if the university is sponsored by Bojangles and KFC is like, hey, we want you to be the guy who who is our figurehead, you know, how does that conversation happen? Yeah. What does that look like?
0: And, oh it's gonna limit opportunities for well, sure. Right. Like if the if the athletic department has a Ford dealership that's you know got a sponsorship, none of the student athletes are gonna be cutting deals with the local Toyota dealership. So when you were talking about, you know, a town like Clemson already being small and not having a lot of opportunities, well, now you as an individual student athlete are essentially competing with the athletic department to try and snag a deal in a category before they do, because once they do it, you're going to be foreclosed from it, or it's going to be, okay, say the Ford dealership sponsors Clemson athletics, um, which is not necessarily true. I'm just giving a, throwing out an example, then maybe the Ford dealership also brokers a separate deal with you to appear in their ads or something like that. So it's not like it forecloses all possibilities, but it starts shrinking the market really it fast. It it takes
1: it. You know, I ride down to Interstate every day and see Coach Winnie on three or four billboards, you know, and I'm like, there's <laughs> not much out here, you know. And there it is. Like, I've, I can't say that I haven't benefited from playing here at this university and, and, and doing what I've done because I have, but that was after the fact. And, um, you know, it is it is a conversation that is going to to continue at great depths and at great lengths, for many, many, many years. And, you know, it's just, it's tough. You know, it's tough to really wrap your head around, you know, what could happen uh, because there is going to be loopholes in it that people find themselves in and say, hey, well, they haven't thought about this. So this is how we're going to take the back door in to get here. And this is what we want to accomplish. And, um, you know, as far as the locker room dynamic, it could probably change things a little bit. And, you know, I, I heard people say that, They can imagine a 17, 18 year old kid that's making seven times what they're making and they're buying season tickets, you know, so it may change that dynamic of people who support the university because they don't want to support pro athletics. They want to support amateur athletics.
0: Right. Yeah, I I think there are a number of ways. It could play out things we've thought of and things we haven't thought of yet, but it will, I think, change sort of the landscape for college athletics forever. And whether that's for better or for worse remains to be seen at this point. But I think it's pretty certain that it's coming, you know, thanks to California passing that bill, the NCAA is going to have to act. And I think they're hoping the federal government is going to act um, because that will – help ensure that it's more uniform across the nation and that it's not conflicting with other federal laws like title nine um, or with antitrust laws. So I think it remains to be seen whether it's coming down from the NCAA or from the federal government, but it's coming. There's no doubt in my well, mind. Tell
1: me this art to kind of clear it up a little bit. What, since California has already you know, put it out in front of, I guess, legislation Senate, mm-hmm. the other States who have not yet, does there need to be a majority vote for vote for this thing to pass through?
0: So California has signed it into law. It just doesn't go into effect until 2023. With all the other states, it is at some stage in their legislature, but I haven't heard anyone who's all that close to passing it. So they're all still discussing it and uh, deciding on it, but no one has anything sitting in front of a governor ready to sign. California was so much further ahead than all the other states were. And I think California legitimately wanted to give the NCAA the time to enact something uniform. Um, That's why they set it to not go into motion until 2023. But some of these other states are really pushing for it to happen sooner, like Florida, where I live, that wants it to happen for next school year. And I don't know what happens then, because the NCAA has sort of indicated they can't move that quickly. And I, I understand why, and that's a whole other conversation. But we can't have Florida allowing student athletes to cut deals come August when no one else in the country can, because that's going to be a recruiting nightmare. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully, I hope that the other states, my personal opinion is that I hope the other states give the NCAA and the federal government time to figure this out so that whatever happens is applied uniformly across college athletics. I, you know, it's coming, it's going to happen, but I'd like to see it happen evenly across the board.
1: Man, that's a lot of cool.
0: (laughs) It it is, you know,
1: and I had... I had somewhat of an inclination on how this conversation was going to go, but, you know, my mind is really trying to, to, to wrap around what we're saying and, and processing right now. So uh, going forward, you know, as far as coaches are concerned, uh, what what they get from a marketing structure, from a marketing standpoint, how does that – because, I mean, my whole thing is like, all right, you know, coach coaches have deals, Adidas deals, Nike deals. Matter of fact, we saw it in basketball – You know, with the guy who, because what we do know from a big marketing standpoint is that wherever you go to university at, there's more of a likelihood that you end up signing with that same apparel brand going forward. Now, and that's, that's a little tricky because there's already middlemen that gets involved who end up paying the price more so than the conglomerates do altogether. So the fact that some people will be able to do this out in the open changes everything because, you know, maybe it makes Miami a little bit more appealing and attractive. You know, maybe they jump back up into a contender in the ACC, you know, because, you know, if you got Adidas money behind you, well, it changes everything on that side of it too. But, you know, my, my same thing still there is, is unlike basketball, you know, you get a chance to in basketball wear a shoe, you sign with the company and that shoe end up if you become a, a big dog, if you become a top player, you end up selling your own shoe. You know, and there right there's a big thing there with that. But in football, you know, we know that these universities are associated with somebody. I mean outside of Georgia Tech, I think they were still around right L Russell uniforms, which is, you know, just archaic all right nobody that. Yeah. but
0: you know, i'm like all right there's still a few of those deals out there texas tried to have their own company for a while but i, I think that experiment uh did not go how they thought it would
1: <laughs> no in the, all right so the longhorn network
0: all right oh boy the longhorn network
1: <laughs> the money that they generate within that goes where
0: Uh, So they have a contract with the University of Texas that guarantees Texas a specific amount every year that I am not remembering off the top of my head right this second. But that essentially ensures that Texas is nearly always uh, the highest revenue producing university in college athletics. Occasionally, we see someone else in the first or second spot. USA Today does a rundown every year. But if you look at the schools that sometimes jump Texas, like I know Wisconsin did it one year, Texas A&M did it one year. Usually it's because they transferred over a big chunk of money from their foundation to the athletic department for a new facility. So like the year that Texas A&M was higher than Texas in that report, it was because they had moved over money for the Kyle Field renovations. So when you kind of average it out and look at a normal year, Texas is almost always going to perform better than everyone else because of that Longhorn Network contract and the guaranteed money they're getting separately from that, in addition to the money they get from the Big 12 for the Big 12's media contract. and. You know, it it was an interesting, again, experiment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that it has not turned out the way ESPN or Texas thought that it would. They've had all sorts of distribution issues. And I don't think it's made anywhere near the money that ESPN had hoped it would make. And so I'm interested to see what happens at the end of the current term of that deal because the big 12 really in my opinion can't have a conference network as long as the longhorn network exists and so if i were espn i would probably want to turn longhorn network into a conference network at the end of the term but texas obviously isn't going to want that because they're getting a huge benefit now so if i had to like look into my crystal ball and guess um, I think down the road, Longhorn Network will get turned into a Big 12 network, but Texas will still be able to take home like some greater portion of the money than the other teams in the conference will be able hmm. to. But that's just my yeah, guess. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: and, and with that, is there any incentive from a coaching standpoint? These coaches are making big dollars. Harbaugh's making a huge amount of money. You know, we know that the Dabble Sweeney's making, what, 10 years, 93 million dollars. And so there has to be some envy within the athletic department too, amongst other coaches, because they're not making those, those lump sums. Now, you know, with that, do you feel that coaches are overpaid for what they do?
0: It's funny because I was going to ask you the exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think that it has probably gone off the rails a little bit. I remember writing a piece years ago about what Petrino was making at Arkansas and making the argument that he was worth every penny because of what he had done in that athletic department and how much more money the athletic department had generated through football. And they had gotten a new apparel deal that was largely driven by him. And I even had a slide that I still use sometimes when I do speaking engagements where I kind of showed what they were paying him versus how their financial fortunes had changed while he was there. However, that was probably almost 10 years ago that I wrote that, and now the Coaching salaries have continued to escalate more and more and more, you know, driven largely by the fact that athletic departments have more money from television revenue. And because athletic departments, I think, still believe that the greatest determiner of success for your football program is who the coach is. It's his ability to recruit, his ability to develop players. You know, I I still think as an athletic director, when you're deciding where to spend your money, the business decision is to spend it on a football coach, to spend it on a men's basketball coach, because those are the two sports where you can get the greatest return on your investment. But I, you know, I'm looking at it very much from a business perspective and the types of decisions ADs are making. I'm super interested to hear what you think as a student athlete, um, especially given the discussion we've had about pay for play and about the NIL. Do you think coaches are getting overpaid?
1: <laughs> well, so I'm in real estate now. All right. And <laughs> I don't mainly because now I know what that is worth in business from an economic mm-hmm. development standpoint. I mean, there was a piece of property for sale uh in the downturn that was bought for about one point three, one point four million and just sold for seven million dollars.
0: They're in yeah. Clemson. All right,
1: that's yeah, big, big leap. That is that is also a direct correlation of what's happened on the football field. Now what Mm -hmm. the university president has done so masterfully is tie back into what's happened athletically into academia. It says, Hey, well, since we have this momentum, let's continue to capture it. All right. We're going to build a business school into, you know, one of the best in the country. All right. We're going to bring in as many faculty members as we possibly can. Applications are coming in Mm -hmm. at a higher rate than we ever anticipated. So it changes everything. So, what a coach, what his, what his principles are, what his integrity is, what he means to a university is way bigger than what just what happens on that football field. It means everything mm-hmm. from a business standpoint, too. So from that standpoint, I mean, somebody got to make the money, and they might as well, I guess, be the coaches if the players can't get paid.
0: Do you think you felt, or how did you feel differently about it when you were a student athlete versus how you feel now that you understand the business side (laughs) I
1: didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was kind of a a byproduct, you know, you know, and then it was like, well, I'll just catch him on the back end too. He's going to make that, but I'm going to make the same thing as I go into the NFL, you know? So that's just kind of the mindset that you have though. You never really think about it. I mean, because you don't have, there's no needs, you know, you got everything taken care of while you're on campus. You know, transportation, not Mm -hmm. that big of an issue because you can pretty much walk everywhere. I had a car, uh, got my driver's license at Clemson, actually. You know, food was taken care of, housing was taken care of. So as an athlete, there's nothing that you personally need. But again, some of these kids are in situations where it's not them who needs it more than it is their families, you know. So I think that it changes the whole conversation.
0: Why do you think we hear, because you've talked about food and why do you think we hear stories here and there? And I think a lot of fans believe that there are student athletes who essentially go hungry, who aren't getting fed. And obviously the situation's different at every school. Schools have differing abilities to be able to <laughs> offer meals. And I know even now it's different than it was when you would have been a student athlete because now they can offer unlimited meals. And that wasn't the case back then. No, not when I was growing um, Yeah. I was going to ask you what what your experience was like. Did you ever feel like you were lacking for anything?
1: No, I really. I mean, it wasn't like I could go out there and go to the best steakhouse in town and, and get a filet and some potatoes. I mean, it, you could, I guess, if you spend your Pell Grant, right? But, you know, most of the times you're buying hats and TVs and everything else, so... <laughs> I, I always
0: tell people I, I spend a lot of time like doing facility tours and going on different campuses. And I, I was not a student athlete. I went to a division three and I was a cheerleader, but we we were not considered athletes. Um, and I would go, you know, I, I worked all through college. Plus I had loans. I took out loans for law school, you know and always had to have a job throughout college. Um, I didn't in law school, but through college. And I go on campuses to visit and I get to eat in some of these dining halls (laughs) that are uh, within the confines of the athletic department. And I get to, you know, they've got smoothie bars and every, you know, weight room and locker room you go in has fresh fruit and there's nuts and there's protein bars and muscle milk. And, you know, like I... I legit like sometimes didn't have enough money to eat in college and was having to, you know, beg my parents for money. And I walk through athletic departments now and I'm like, I would have ate pretty good as a student athlete. (laughs) And I think sometimes, you know, fans don't get to see that. And so you hear these conversations about student athletes not making money and that they're starving. Um, But it just hasn't been my experience at the campuses I've been on.
1: I don't think that's the case at all. I I will say this, though, I guess. Winning cures everything, right, or or cures some things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we see is really a disparity between football and every other sport. All right, Clemson, you know, much like some of these other top football programs, I mean, there is legitimately a disparity between them and other athletic departments. All right, so, you know, Clemson has their own weight room they have their own dining hall, right? So they never have to worry about going actually on campus if they don't want to. They got every meal there, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I believe. And, you know, some of the other sports, well, they got to eat on campus again and they got to work out in pretty much a uniform team kind of atmosphere, weight room where everybody is welcome and and all sports end up colliding at some point or another. So, you know, from that standpoint, like it's, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, they don't got it so bad in comparison, you know?
0: What my, my sort of last question I had on my list of things I knew I wanted to talk to you about was to ask you how you think the success of the football program at Clemson has changed the athletic department in the town since you were a student athlete.
1: Um, it's an attraction, you know, it is an attraction and, and don't get me wrong. Like I've got friends that come into town and I take, I don't know, 40, 50 pictures a day at grocery store, you know? So it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a thing here. You know, it's a, it's a big thing. And people's like, "Bro, why do people still care?" I'm like, "I don't know. I just love people, you know. I guess they love me back." You know, it's kind of one of those things. <laughs> but it is growing at an unprecedented rate. And you know, one time, uh CJ Spiller, big name, you remember that name? Um yep. and I were walking through a crowd. And you know, usually when we're together, I mean, it's just tough to get anywhere. You know, sometimes it takes us an hour to get 700 feet you know, but there was this huge crowd, and we were like, Hey, man, we're just gonna walk through, we're gonna keep our head down. And so we walked through, and nobody says anything. And we're like, Oh my gosh, this is random, this is weird, you know? And so we go back and we ask them, like, Hey, you know, where are you guys from? And they say, Hey, we're from California. It's like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they got on all the clumps and stuff. So I'm like, You know, what are you guys doing here? And it was like, uh, Yeah, this is kind of our bucket list. You know, we always wanted to come and check it out. and, and we've seen what's been happening with the football program. So we wanted to come check a game ourselves. And so it becomes a, an attraction, you know, a tourist destination simply because of that. And then we yeah. got to figure as polarized as coach Sweeney, it just is icing on the cake because now every business, every high school, every middle school, everybody who's involved in some setting where a team is involved wants to figure out what the formula is. And so, it has changed it's changed everything, you know, uh, especially uh, in the the money standpoint, the accommodations, the the restaurant business. So everybody thrives off of what's happening in these small college towns, and that's yeah. the reason that I actually decided to come to Clemson. You know, when I was considering to going to Ohio State, you know, it was such a massive place that I was like, I, I might get lost here. You know, they were saying that there's seventy thousand students, and it's in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's in the middle of Columbus. And you know, one of the guys on the team was like, "Hey, if you ever see a girl, you need to go ahead and talk to her because you may not ever see her again." And that was was (laughs) stressful for me. You know, (laughs) and then you know, it's or it's like going to Boston College. Boston College was my first offer, and I go to BC, and uh, who was there? Mike Sparavo and a couple other coaches was there at the time, and um, you know, I'm going on my visit. And it just, some just didn't seem there. And it just didn't seem like there was a lot of thought or care about what was happening at mm-hmm. the College football department. And it was because it was so much, so many other things around, you know, you got the, the Celtics, you got the, the Patriots, you got the Bruins. Right. It
0: doesn't have that West college top. town kind of feel. Right, <laughs> It was
1: solely the economy would thrive, whether, you know, the university or football succeeded or not, mm-hmm. you know, and with Clemson, you know, again, with what they're trying to do from an academia standpoint makes sense because every university at some point, at least in my lifetime, has had a cycle. You know, I I played Little League and went my freshman year of high school with Percy Harvin, and so I know what he meant to the University of Florida, you know, and I know how their run happened and and what it looked like, and we saw Florida State's run, and we saw Texas's run, and we saw Southern Mm -hmm. run, and Clemson for the time being until I believe this NIL thing actually happens. It's going to be on that same path where it is a historic run. And, you know, that for the time being is going to make this economy continue to boom, regardless of what happens in the global economy.
0: Do you think that, and only because you just mentioned this, do you think NIL coming hurts a school like Clemson?
1: I do. I do. yeah, uh, I do. And I, you know, just because, you know, I, I know the purity in, in knowing how Clemson football operations works. I mean, they really have these kids' best interests at heart. Um, but when other motives are involved, you know, it does change everything. So regardless of how good you are, you know, sometimes a nice guy does finish last, you know, and, yeah. and that may be the case going forward uh, depending on how this thing unveils and, and unleashes uh, because there's such huge market value in in these these major cities, you know. And Columbus is one, too. So Columbus is going to be fine. You know, South Bend, because of what they've been from, from a history standpoint, because of how big their alumni base is, because of how many connections that they have, they thrive. You know, Southern Cal thrives. UCLA thrives. You know, some of these schools that may not have even ever been on the forefront now get that opportunity because of what that looks like. If I was a kid and they asked me, you know, I, I might consider going to Harvard. You know, I might go Ivy League, you know because I know what that base looks Mm -hmm. like. So it it does, and and I'm interested to see how it really does play out and if it affects it it, as bad as I think that it will.
0: Do you think it would have changed your college decision if you had been, like, fielding sponsorship opportunities and there had been greater opportunities somewhere outside of Clemson?
1: At the time, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it'd be hard to say absolutely not, because, you know, at that point, you know, it's a a totally different world. You know, Clemson might not have even – been able to really step in that room because of what they didn't have. Mm -hmm. You know, it would have been Michigan. It would have been Ohio state. You know, I I went out on a trip to Oregon. It could have been Oregon and Phil Knight and Nike and all of that over there. So it, you know, I have no clue, but hopefully, you know, when these kids make these decisions going forward, if it does play out the way that it possibly could, you know, hopefully they make the decision that they think is going to be the best for them in the long run.
0: Yeah. I'm interested to see what happens. And I I think this will, this, Will be going on for a while as they sort of figure out what it's going to look like and it starts getting implemented so you and i might have to circle back in the future when we know more about it and talk about it again
1: yeah exactly exactly so we'll revisit this you know we'll continue to build on it um i'm sure you know what? And, and matter of fact you know as things get closer and closer All these things keep happening. You know, there's new trends popping up every day in collegiate athletics, and there's this big business across the board. You know, it keeps ESPN operating at a high level, keeps the economy thriving, and, you know, it gives us something to talk about here. So I'm excited to see what does happen and how it all plays out.
0: Yeah. I never run out of things to write about, so it's good in that sense.
1: (laughs) For sure. For sure.
0: Well, thanks well, for chatting with me. I really enjoyed this. I could talk to you for two or three more hours, but I'm not sure either of our listeners will listen to us talk for that long. So we'll just agree <laughs> to do it again sometime.
1: <laughs> yeah, I haven't quite gotten to Joe Rogan level yet where I can listen to a podcast for three straight days. So who works <laughs> cool work there though. But Christy, I appreciate you so much and uh, can't wait to read the book. And I'll make sure that people get a chance to check it out themselves too.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. I can't wait to hear what you think about it.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate you.